So the very first thing I want to say is China's economic growth has certainly become one of the most important uh, indicators of the world economy's um, growth prospects, which became very apparent um, in this crisis. And I suppose one easy way of thinking about how China has managed to um, get here is to take a look at what's happened in the last 30 years. So 1979, China started market-oriented reforms, moving away from central planning. And this shows you real GDP growth in China. And the impressive part to me is what this actually means in terms of incomes in China. So at a growth rate at about 9 to 10% per year, Chinese GDP, the entire output of China, doubles about every seven years. So just that is an impressive, impressive rate of growth. And this is why China has, in the span of just three decades, become the world's third largest economy. Um, and I suppose, for me, one of the most important parts of it is that, at the same time, it has lifted an estimated 400 million people out of poverty. <laughs> yeah, 400 million. That's larger than the entire population of the United States. And so it is this record, I think, that's made China's growth so impressive. But my focus today is to try and place China within the global context, within the context of the recent crisis. And I think to do that, we have to first assess what the impact of China is on the global economy. And I've termed this the China effect. There's four main avenues um, as to how it is that China has affected the global economy. The very first one is international trade. Now, within international trade, there's going to be multiple elements, some which have to do with specialization, so China producing things and making other countries' exports less competitive. Other parts of trade have to do with supply chains, globalization, global production moving across borders. And amazingly, around, internationally, one-third of all global trade is actually intra-firm. So these kinds of multinational production and supply chains are a big component of what we think of as trade. It is no longer just um, Britain producing uh, bread and in exchange for Portuguese wine. Um, uh, modern trade is much more complex. The second part is global capital flows. And again, this also has a number of dimensions, including foreign direct investment, China being a, a, a place which competes with other countries for foreign direct investment, um, but also being a magnet for foreign direct investment um, in uh, the Asian region, pulling in other investment um, to help the region uh, develop uh, an, uh, as an attractive place for uh, manufacturing trade. Um, and the exchange rate, of course, plays into both of these elements, so the balance of payments, the trade side and the capital side. Now, when the um, 
the third part is global supply and demand for commodities and raw materials. Now, I point this out separately because what I, I suppose the way that I think about it is that even if you as a country do not trade with China, China's demand for energies and commodities will push up supply prices in your country because it affects global prices. And so that is, the, that is another separate avenue of, uh, of impact. And then very finally is in terms of generating global growth. Now this one has become really important in this recession. Where is growth going to come from? Um, and so I would say of these four different avenues, up until about the real commodity boom of 2007-2008, the net China effect was to push down global inflation, reducing prices. And then this third avenue in the real commodity boom of the last couple of years began to outweigh that. And then China became an inflationary force in the global economy. So the impact of China is much more complex than just it produces cheap goods that we can buy cheaply. It is, a, it's, it is a mixture of these different avenues. This is just to set the scene for what the China effect is um, before we move on to how this played into the global imbalances, which themselves was the backdrop to the global financial crisis. Um, just a couple of charts very quickly to show you how quickly Chinese uh, trade has grown really since the early 1990s. So starting in the early 80s, which this chart maps, Chinese exports have increased tenfold. Chinese imports have increased eightfold. And most of the increase has come after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. So what is China's role in the financial crisis? I would say it is an indirect role. It is certainly not responsible for the global financial crisis, but it is one component of the macroeconomic picture that had fed into um, some of the economic decisions which led to really the worst banking crisis we've had in a century. Um, so let me kind of trace out where China fits um, into the global macroeconomic context of the noughties. And these are the main avenues, and I'll show you some data in the next slide. Uh, the very first one is via its impact as a major trader. So China today is the world's largest trader. It has certainly affected the macroeconomic context of globalization after it joined the WTO. And the the impact up until, as I say, the last couple of years has been to push down inflation and contribute to the great moderation, which describes this past decade as a period in which the volatility of the business cycle has been lessened and we have had very strong growth with low inflation, leading, I'm afraid, to a great deal of complacency including a famous claim by the British Prime Minister Gordon Brown on Newsnight when he claimed to have ended boom and bust. They replay that clip a lot. <laughs> 
the uh, second part of the role is global imbalances. Let me try and define that a little bit. And as I say, I will walk you through um, some data behind it. This is this idea that America in particular consumes by borrowing, so they consume too much. And China uh, saves too much and consumes too little. So America has low savings and a large trade deficit from all of its consumption, including of imports sold by China and other countries. And China, of course, sells these goods and has low levels of consumption. This global imbalance feeds into the next part, which is when a country accumulates a trade surplus, that means that lots of money, foreign money, is coming into their economy, the Chinese economy, building up foreign exchange reserves, which in China's case is the world's largest at two trillion US dollars. Two trillion US dollars. That's roughly the size of the British economy. <laughs> we could use some of that, but <laughs> that's, a different, <laughs> that's a different topic. Um, and what this implies is when you have these reserves, you end up with an appetite for US debt because the reserves, in order to maintain your exchange rate, means that you will buy up the dollars that uh, aren't demanded with your foreign exchange earnings in order to keep your exchange rate fixed and rather low. So there is a huge appetite for US debt, which I should add, not just from China, but also from other developing Asian countries who also run trade surpluses and also Middle Eastern oil exporters. And I'll show you some of the trends. Um, and then very finally, normally when you have these global imbalances, there is an automatic rebalancing. So in other words, if there is a huge trade surplus in China, then the currency ought to experience a great deal of demand you demand Chinese renminbi to buy Chinese goods, so demand for the currency should rise. And as the currency appreciates, it makes the goods less competitive, so therefore it should reduce the trade surplus. And the same thing should happen to the United States. People shouldn't demand the US dollar because the US is running a large uh, trade deficit. Um, but of course, a fixed exchange rate means the currency doesn't appreciate you don't shrink the trade surplus. And in the case of the United States, it is the global reserve currency. You demand the dollar for all sorts of reasons, not just having to do with its trade position. So there was no automatic rebalancing um, either. So a bit of data to show you what I'm talking about. Now, sometimes when you have these figures, they can be difficult to read because they're crunched together. But I don't think there is any doubt which country <laughs> this is. This is uh, Chinese real GDP growth from 1980 to the present measured against the richest countries in the world, America, Japan, Germany, France, and yes, Britain. <laughs> we are still there for the moment. The, what I should, uh, the, the thing I'd like to point out about this chart is up until the beginning of the noughties, this decade, world economic growth was always roughly 
the growth rate of the rich economies. Since the beginning of the noughties, world economic growth has actually been higher than that of the rich economies. It is being pulled up, not just by China, but also by other emerging economies. This one, I think, shows you what's happened probably even more clearly. And this is share of global GDP. And as you can see from this, the United States still accounts for about 20% of world GDP. It is still by far the richest economy in the world. But again, no surprise, perhaps, that China has quickly become the second most important economy in the world when you calculate GDP adjusted for purchasing power. Um, And this is why um, China, alongside the US, have become known as the twin engines of growth for their importance. Now, if you look down here, this is the other rich, these are the other rich economies. And if you look closely, I'm afraid that uh, China surpassed Britain sometime in the early 90s. <laughs> so this has been a dramatic transformation, which most of us didn't notice, um, I should add, until the noughties, when China's trade impact became so important. But this is important to stress. Despite the fact that China is such a big economy, per capita levels of income are very low in China. So this is GDP per capita from last year. And what you can see is that the euro area, the United States, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand remain much wealthier on a per capita basis than China and the Middle East, East Asia, the other emerging markets, which are part of the global imbalances and picture as well. So lower levels of income implies a number of things, including lower levels of consumption. Even if they're fast growing, they are poorer. It's hard to see how they would be able to take the place of, say, the uh, US consumer because of the differences in, in disposable income. The other implication of that is lower incomes mean they would, it's cheaper to produce in these countries. So what I have mapped here is foreign direct investment to the developing world, which started to rise in the early 1990s. If you cast your mind back, the early 1990s heralded a transformation in the world, um, well, certainly in the world economy. China's open door policy took off in 1992. India turned outward in 1991-1992 after a bounce of payments crisis. Eastern Europe um, abandoned communism and the planned economy and adopted capitalism and rejoined the world trading community. This is what Richard Freeman of Harvard calls the great doubling. These three countries and regions, these three regions um, doubled the global labor force at the start of the 1990s. Um, all of their workers doubled the world uh, labor supply from one and a half billion to three billion. And so that puts downward pressure clearly on wages in the developed world, and it increases the pressure uh, and the attraction of offshoring and locating in these countries. And that's what the 1990s um, picked up. This, I think, um, shows you 
the deflationary effect of having all of these new workers pushing down prices in the world economy. So the other extraordinary consequence is that in the last decade, this maps inflation around the world for rich countries, developing countries. And what you can see in the last decade is that there has been a very low rate of inflation despite very strong rates of growth because of the great doubling, because of the emergence of these low-cost um, countries. At the same time, what you had was a decline in the U.S. savings rate and a rise in the Asian savings rate. So as this, uh, as this globalization was taking place, there was clearly something else which was um, going on, which is the savings behavior of Asia um, was mirroring, and to a large extent, the savings behavior of the United States, setting, up the, the, setting the stage for the global imbalances of uh, low savings and uh, borrowing by the Americans and high savings and uh, by the Asians. Um, now, I put the euro area on here. Um, just to uh, show you what's happened there, even though, of course, um, you can see the euro area, the savings rate, hadn't changed um, a great deal in the last decade. And this chart shows you the current account part of the consumption in the United States. So the U.S. consumed a great deal, including of imports. So the U.S. current account balance as a share of global GDP is almost exactly mirrored by the current account surpluses of Asia and Middle Eastern oil exporters. And again, I've put up the euro area just to show the euro area has actually been roughly in balance. Um, so you might be wondering, just as a brief aside, how is it that Europe ended up in, the, in this um, financial crisis? Well, in Europe, after about 1999, European banks were uh, permitted to access U.S. wholesale money markets, tapping into this global imbalance of which the U.S. Um, uh, was a big um, part. So I'm afraid we put ourselves in it. <laughs> okay, so when you have these, reserve, when you have these um, surpluses, as I say, a consequence is that you accumulate foreign exchange. So what you see from this chart is that starting in 2000, the global imbalances translated into a rapid accumulation of foreign exchange reserves in particularly China, Asia, and the Middle Eastern oil exporters. So this was, in a sense, the macroeconomic backdrop to this current um, crisis. So how does it all add up to a crisis? Um, the very first thing is no, there was, there was um, no regime to watch for global imbalances. And so what you had instead was rich economies like the US where the central bank, which is supposed to be on the lookout um, for uh, uh, 
possible instability in the economy was focused on inflation because inflation targeting, aiming for a level of inflation price stability was the main aim of the Federal Reserve. And of course, in Britain and in the Euro area, there were explicit targets of what uh, central banks were to do. So when there was a when there was low inflation as a result of uh, the uh, uh, emergence of emerging markets, inflation seemed extremely low while growth was strong. So the central banks didn't see the need uh, to raise interest rates, which is normally what you would um, expect if there was this huge amount of demand for U.S. Um, assets. So global savings being funneled into U.S. Uh, debt, which was then uh, uh, translated into a lot of liquidity in the U.S. And to make matters worse, the low interest rate in the U.S. meant a lot of lenders were looking around for borrowers, even if they were subprime ones, because uh, lending was so cheap. And um, it didn't matter if you were um, a ninja. No income, job, or assets, but here's your mortgage. <laughs> um, and so the, the low interest rate policy certainly contributed to this. Another way to think about it, which I think um, I find useful, is I showed you the decline in the U.S. savings rate. Normally, if the savings stock falls, you actually would expect that savings would become uh, uh, harder to get. So therefore, there should be more expensive um, to get uh, a liquidity, to get um, uh, loans. But that didn't happen. And interest rates, um, which is the price of money, um, stayed low despite this liquidity. The other thing that I should add is that also within Western central banks, there was this feeling that um, their, their goal wasn't to target asset bubbles. Um, and in fact, one central banker uh, described it as um, if you were to do that, it would be like being the guy who takes away the punch bowl just as the party gets started. Um, they always thought it would be easier to deal with the aftermath of the asset bubble. Now, we know from this crisis, <laughs> there's just sometimes the aftermath <laughs> is not easier to deal with. Um, and let me just um, uh, finally reiterate why fixed exchange rates um, uh, also played a role. So you, I already described why it is you don't get rebalancing. Um, Another part of it is when the U.S. Fed began to raise interest rates in 2004, they, there was a worry then at the time. They began to see the subprime mortgages build up. And there was some concern about why it was there was excess liquidity and therefore mispriced risk. So the Fed started to raise interest rates between 2004 and 2007 when the U.S. housing market began to decline. And nothing happened when they raised interest rates. And at the time, Alan Greenspan described it as a conundrum. And the reason was actually because central banks and emerging economies were buying U.S. treasuries 
And therefore, <laughs> when the Fed was raising interest rates, he, they weren't getting the rise in interest rates that they expected on yields. So these emerging central banks were buying treasuries to fix their exchange rate regardless of the yield. So therefore, their demand also pushed down the efforts of the Fed to raise interest rates. So the 2008 global financial crisis, in a nutshell, <laughs> is 1980s financial deregulation clearly led to a very unregulated, in many respects, financial market. The 1990s globalization set the scene for a very different inflationary environment, um, which was, um, in retrospect, um, not... Uh, picked up by uh, central banks for the reasons I've described. And then finally, the Nazi's global imbalances. It was in part because the dot-com bubble, which burst in 2001, uh, the Fed avoided a recession in the U.S. at the time by cutting interest rates. So that set the stage for the low interest rates and the cheap lending, and therefore driving savings even lower in the U.S. And that, in turn, led to subprime mortgages through the uh, processes I've just described. And then, of course, I think we are all very familiar <laughs> with what happened next, which was the credit crunch. And housing, of course, has much wider coverage than tech stocks. And so this was always going to be a worse bust than the dot-com bubble. Um, and of course, securitization meant we got uh, these toxic assets, which were spread through the global financial system as a result. So what was the effect of the global financial crisis on China? And this is um, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the final part of my lecture, which is to try and uh, pick through uh, what the effect is on China and then conclude with what it all means for global rebalancing um, as we come out of this crisis. In China, of course, a, this kind of asset, this kind of financial crisis works through two different avenues. One is financial effects, contagion, what I've described for Europe. The Europeans um, had, of course, um, their own set of problems, um, but for the most part, you got a lot of contagion because of securitization. Um, in China, there wasn't much contagion, and I'll go through the next slide, but the main effect was on the real economy, the decline of exports, which have pretty much um, disappeared in China. Um, but because of what I'm going to uh, outline next, there was some decoupling. So China was able to grow despite the fact that the world was in recession. So the financial sector effects in terms of contagion, China's underdeveloped capital market in this sense helped it. So in, we hear sometimes in development this concept of the advantages of backwardness. And so in this, China doesn't trade in derivatives or exotic instruments. So the only contagion that it felt was via direct losses where some of its banks were Lehman creditors. But there was no contagion. Um, of course, there has been dramatic movement in the Chinese stock market. Um, that uh, certainly has happened because China is very much globally integrated in many ways. Um, but I would say it reflects concerns and optimisms primarily about the real economy in China itself. It's not a reflection of the valuation of banks, as you see in the West. 
The main effect for China is certainly on the real economy side. Exports have collapsed with an estimated 20 million migrant workers who have lost their jobs. Unemployment is rising, but it's not captured by official statistics, which show that unemployment will only rise to about 4.5% uh, this year, which um, is not accurate because unemployment figures in China don't capture migrant workers. It's only of urban residents. Um, now, annual growth in China last year was 9%, which is about its average growth rate over the last 30 years. And it was 7.1% in the first half of this year. Um, and there is still, even now, some concern that the global recession and the decline in exports will drag growth down even further, unless, of course, it's offset by government spending um, stimulating the economy. Um, now, this, I think, gives an idea about the size of government in China, which is pretty small um, relative to what it is even in other developing countries. China's uh, government spending is less than a fifth of GDP. Um, in Britain, as we know, it is half. It is huge. And actually, it's growing every day. Um, and, but the, the, um, whether or not it can offset the decline in exports certainly depends on whether or not Chinese spending um, can, be, uh, can boost domestic demand in its stead. Um, but the other feature I want to show you on this chart is that China has had a falling consumption rate throughout this decade. This is the other side of the U.S. Um, savings rate that I, that, that I mentioned earlier. And as China has grown, its consumption rate used to be about half of GDP, which is about what it is for market economies. Between half and two-thirds is about what it is for most market economies. The U.S. is 70%, which is too high. China today at only about 30, high 30s, maybe 40%, is considered to be too low. And so you do have falling consumption and rising savings in China as the other component to stimulate so that reliance is not just on government spending to get out of um, this um, recession. Um, but a word on fiscal stimulus and the problems that I see here. China has unleashed um, a very large stimulus program. Worldwide, uh, governments have pledged in the very first round of coordinated stimulus spending, about $2.5 trillion. Of that, $1.5 trillion was to be spent by the United States and by China. And the US is a much bigger economy. The problem I see is that only about a quarter of the stimulus was to be funded by the central government. Most of it was to be financed by state-owned banks. And what's happened is that the Chinese stimulus package was $4, uh, was four trillion renminbi, which is a large figure. Um, but the credit unleashed to finance it in the first half of this year was 7 trillion renminbi. And there is now quite a lot of, uh, obviously, concern that this credit, this money which is being unleashed, is just feeding asset bubbles in the stock market and in real estate. 
Um, in terms of what this infrastructure, what this money is to spend to be spent on, most of it is on infrastructure, which is needed. But if the worry is that Chinese consumption has fallen and can sustain domestic demand, then arguably too little is spent on social uh, spending, reducing social insecurities to boost consumption. Now. The Chinese subsequently added 125 billion to spend on health and another 400 million on rural pensions. Um, but in relative to the size of uh, the stimulus, these are still smaller, um, perhaps, than what's needed. So I think what this crisis has shown China is it doesn't need to be an export-led economy. It, it has a large domestic market. Um, by losing exports and being pulled by global by the global recession, I think has pushed them to consider um, improving domestic demand. Specifically, this is an opportunity to focus on why it is that consumption has fallen as a share of GDP, and what during a time when growth in real incomes exceeded 10% annually, um, and. The, the other part of it, which is, I think, important to also keep in mind, is that um, Chinese savings is growing, but only half of it is savings by households. The other half is by Chinese corporations, because the credit system is state-dominated. So companies save a great deal in order to grow organically. And that also pushes up the savings rate. So reforming a capital markets to make to allow for productive investment would also boost domestic demand, the investment component that I showed you. Um, but in the short term, certainly infrastructure, China needs a great deal of roads, can, or can create jobs, especially for the migrant workers who have lost their jobs. And it can provide future benefits um, with roads and rail being much more efficient. Um, and I think the other thing which has, which has been a a huge issue in China is when this crisis has shown a great deal of institutional fragilities in the economy. When people lose their jobs, they have no recourse. And I think, again, this has been highlighted. So this just shows you a composition of GDP in China to give you data behind what I'm referring to. Chinese industry was half of GDP in 1978, and it remains half of GDP today. What they have to do is reindustrialize, reform state-owned enterprises, reform capital markets, so that this reindustrialization shifts capital to more productive uses. It's not trying to industrialize. It is a different challenge. And services is already growing as a share of GDP. And investment services, in particular, can also help to reduce the savings motive and the asset bubbles that you see in China today, where investment has very few um, places to go. So my last few slides, just want, I just want to bring it all back together and say what this is all mean for global rebalancing. So this slide just um, points out some internal reasons, I think, why it is that it is in China's interest to undertake global rebalancing. The very first thing is volatility in its own assets points to uh, the problems um, of being a source of, 
of uh, trap savings and liquidity. So China is worried about asset bubbles, and this is indeed one of the reasons why you ought to have a much more balanced global economy, so you don't have these asset bubbles accumulating due to global capital flows. Um, and this, I think, is the reason why China has agreed in the G20 to participate in this new forum run by the G20 to have an early warning system about the buildup of macro imbalances. That's not to say that they would agree to um, do anything <laughs> if, say, the G20 forum says, oh, no, now you must uh, uh, raise interest rates and float the renminbi. <laughs> Now, I don't think that would work, but I think they've all signed up because they recognize they have to be able to monitor what's happening in terms of global liquidity and this, these imbalances. Um, and I think what China's also doing is they're changing their own capital account. They're beginning to allow for capital outflows. By doing that, they naturally reduce the balance of payments, reducing the need to buy U.S. treasuries, shifting Chinese savings into U.S. lending. Um, instead, by allowing its companies to go global, become multinationals, they could just invest the money into assets. And as far as I know, we in Britain have quite a lot of bank shares we would like to sell. So there are potentially good opportunities um, there. And the Chinese have now become serious about this policy. They said they're going to use foreign exchange reserves to finance M&A activities by its firms. So the implications for global imbalances of China's own desires and, um, and actions is, uh, let me first say, there's already um, some uh, rebalancing of the global imbalances. The U.S., because of the recession, is already consuming less and the savings rate is already up. The U.S. trade deficit is now only 3% of GDP. It's halved in the span of just the past few months. And China, again, um, its consumption is steady, um, but as I say, the problems of domestic demand are much more structural. It's government, it's households, it's firms. Um, and I suppose I would also argue that gradual rebalancing is preferable rather than having some um, system imposed, you must rebalance, for the simple reason that Western economies are issuing record amounts of debt. <laughs> Surely, we would want countries to continue to buy these debts while they gradually liberalize their own exchange rates so they're not so reliant on buying debt to stabilize their currencies. And the G20 agreement covers a great deal of this, and it has been called the New World Order. At least it's been called that last night on Newsnight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in conclusion, um, China has played an indirect, role, a, an indirect role in this crisis. It's just been part of the transformation of the global economy in the noughties. But there are clearly real consequences for China as it struggles to reach the 8% growth rate that it needs, which generates an upwards of 10 million jobs for its own uh, still developing um, economy. 
Um, where China goes from here is undoubtedly a challenge, but I think more so than ever, it now sees that it has been too easy to sell to Western consumers for too long, and perhaps it is time to focus on their, the Chinese uh, domestic consumer and firms. And I'll stop there and uh, start the Q&A session. Thank you very much for your attention.